Who are the runners? Do you know this whole series was, or this little concept was kicked off by something I read in the scriptures. I've been a minister for, 20, for nearly 30 years now. And it's amazing when you read the Bible, you think you know it. And with Easter coming up, I was praying and preparing uh, an Easter series. And, and I, one of the things that you tend to do if you've, if you've spoken a lot on this subject is you kind of think, Lord, where is there something fresh in this? Where can, you know, gosh, you know, we want to preach the cross of Jesus and his, his death and resurrection. We want to preach sins forgiven. We want to preach the lordship of Christ. Of course, of course, of course. And I'm passionate and excited about that. But it does, you do find yourself when it comes to Easter, when it comes to Christmas, you think, well, you know, a baby was born in a stable. What more can I say? You know, Jesus went to the cross. Yes, what fresh, what new thing. What's the new angle I can bring to this to, to kind of just get excited and insightful and passionate? And I was reading through Mark's gospel. In fact, I've been reading through his memoirs, the, the gospel, the memoirs of Mark in the Bible over the last few weeks. And I suddenly came across something I didn't think I'd seen before. And I thought, how is this possible? How can I miss this? And I checked in the other, in the other Gospels, and, and it's not referenced there, it's, it's unique. And it started off this chain of thought. And so this Sunday and next Sunday, I'm just gonna uh, think aloud and ask a few questions and hopefully come up with one or two answers. But let's read the passage. This passage is in Mark chapter 14, it'll come up on the screen. And it's verses 44 to 52. And just to, to let you know where we're up to in all of this is that that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has just had his last meal with his closest friends. We call them the disciples, the followers. And there were many followers of Jesus, but he had this core team of about a dozen. And they, they had been surrounded by crowds. He'd been you know, teaching in the temple, but Jesus said, I want to just spend a, a, an evening with you guys, just sort of a time of intimacy and reflection and share a few thoughts. And so they've had that. But the significance of this evening is that Jesus knows that he's going to be betrayed. He knows that it's actually going to be one of his closest associates, one of his disciples, that's actually going to betray him. He also knows that it's going to happen tonight. So after the meal, he knows he's going to you know, maybe have a few short hours and then he will be arrested. And he also knows that he's going to die on the cross. All this he understands and has appreciated. So they have the meal, and then Jesus says to them, listen, guys, I need to go and spend some time in prayer. You come with me. You're going to need all the help you can get. You're going to need every ounce of character. You're going to need all the, all the spirituality you can muster. You're going to need to dial up that deep, deep, profound trust in God because what is coming down the track towards us now, you would not believe, even though I have told you. And they didn't. So they went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. I, I had the fortune, good fortune to be there last year. and It is still an extraordinary place. Made all the more extraordinary by the fact that there are 2,000-year-old olives, olive trees in this place. There are trees there that were actually witnesses to this. Just old, gnarly things. There is these living creatures, these living entities that were there and saw that it is a weird place so Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and they pray and the disciples keep falling asleep sounds like me when I'm praying 
He keeps waking up, and then suddenly he can see torches coming up the valley towards them. And he can hear the clank of armor, and he knows that this is the moment. The other thing to say is that at this point, Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, has already slipped off into the night to, to tell, the, to tell the, the soldiers, this is a good moment to come and arrest him. He's on his own. He's just got a few, few people around him. You can do it quietly, quickly. The crowd won't know. And Judas Iscariot has made an arrangement with the, with the soldiers. He says, listen, it's a bit dark out there, but the one I go to kiss and greet with the kiss of peace, he's Jesus. Arrest him. He's your man. man it's, it's just a kind of dripping with mood and moment. And this is where we pick up the story. Verse 44. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, that means teacher, and kissed him. And the men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Jesus said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus. You've come with swords and clubs to capture me. Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But whatever, the scriptures, the prophecies about me must be fulfilled. And then everyone deserted him and fled. Everyone deserted him. The closest friends, his, his disciples, they'd been through every three years of hell and high water together. Every single one of them, the scripture tells, tells us, had said to Jesus, I will never leave you, Jesus. Everyone else may be. These guys might. I won't. I will die with you, Jesus. If they come and arrest you or try and take you, I will die rather than let you go. But in this moment, their will, their resolve broke. And they deserted him and ran away. Now there's some runners. His best friends ran away. But Mark adds this extra thing. And as I said, this is unique to Mark. Mark's gospel is, is the earliest of the memoirs, the gospel accounts of, of Jesus' life. It, it's raw. It's, it's not polished. It's not being mucked about with. It's just the raw kind of data. It's, it's Mark writing down the story with Peter at his side the first amongst the apostles, and, and they're getting it down because they realize that this, this church thing is going to go on and on beyond their lives. And so Mark adds this, verse 51. He says, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. And when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. And I read that. I read it again. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving the garment behind. I thought, what's that about? What is that doing there? I mean, what does that add to the story? What is that? Why isn't it in the other Gospels? What is this about? And I, I kind of remembered somewhere that I had heard that it's generally regarded that it might be Mark himself, the author of this book. It was known that Mark was... Peter's close associate and traveled with Peter when he went on his travels and you know, shared the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus in the early days of the church. He was definitely there, but he wasn't one of the disciples. So 
It's only speculation, no one can be certain, but it, but it is thought that maybe this is the author himself who has followed the disciples and then gets caught up in it all, but we, we really don't know. Uh, and I read this and I read this and I read this and I couldn't quite understand why I was so fixed on it. And then suddenly a penny dropped, my theory if you like. Suddenly a thought occurred to me. And curiously enough, it was the embarrassing fact that he ran away naked that tripped the thought for me. You see, here we are in this garden, this young man, whoever he is, whatever he is, whyever he's there, we do not know. He, he gets caught up in the melee. And I can kind of visualize him, you know, like the, the guards see him and they kind of lay hands on him and they grab, he's wriggling and writhing, you know, uh, and they, they grab his clothing and he, he, he pulls away and ends up escaping naked, running naked. And Mark puts this in. And I suddenly thought, who is the running man? Who is the running man? And then I remembered something. I remembered something right from the beginning of the Bible. Those opening chapters where there is an account. There's actually two accounts in the early chapters, but there is an account of the creation of all things seen and unseen. And in this account, you have Adam and Eve, the first man, the first woman, and they enjoy a privileged position. They enjoy paradise, but not just paradise, not just somewhere that they, they can enjoy, you know, with beautiful trees and beautiful vistas and everything they should want or anything like that. They enjoy something in addition to that, and that is the very presence of God. Because God spends time with them. God hangs out. Can you imagine that? They're friends together. And basically, he says to man and woman, he says, I've made everything, I've made everything here for your pleasure. I, I enjoy it. I hope you will too. Let's enjoy it together. By the way, there's just one thing I need to say. There is a part of the garden I don't want you to go to. And I certainly don't want you to, in the middle of that, there, there is this, this place where, quite frankly, there's, if, you were to, if you were to go and uh, eat this fruit, if you were to take in upon yourself what is in that, that place, it will destroy you. It's, it's bigger than you. So listen, one rule, that's all. Just stay away from there. Enjoy everything else, but stay away from there. And guess what they do? I guess you know. They go to the place they're not supposed to go to. <laughs> and they do what they, they're not supposed to do. Sound familiar? They do stuff that they know will damage them, but they can't somehow help themselves. And we pick up this story just as, as it comes to a bit of a head. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 to 10 says this. Then the man and his wife, having, having eaten this fruit, as it were, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? And man answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Quick hide, he's coming. Quick, run, 
Quick, behind that boulder. We are naked in the garden. Run from him. I suddenly made a connection. Mark is wanting to draw attention to the fact that actually before God, we're all naked. And by that I don't mean just undressed, I mean that everything we are is laid before God. He knows us exactly as we are. He sees us as we are. We are as if transparent before him. No wonder we run from him. No wonder we spend our lives trying to sort of crowd him out of our lives. You know, many people have some sort of an awareness of God. It's fascinating. In the 70s, you know, atheism was in the ascendancy. I know because I was training in the, in the 70s. Atheism is, is not in the ascendancy now. There is a wide belief in something. But we want something, whatever something is, on our terms. We want to go, no, 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 we don't want any of that kind of, oh, we don't want this, we don't want that. Yeah, we believe in you and that's enough, okay? Whatever you are, whoever you are. The reality is that, that actually we feel naked before God and we flee from him. We run from him because we feel ashamed. We feel shame for the things we've done Sometimes we feel shame for no other reason than we just feel shame. It's, it's just tragic. Because the reality is that God doesn't want to come down and wag a finger at us. I, I said a few months ago I did a Catholic funeral, which was an extraordinary experience, a wonderful experience, I have to say. And as I was preaching there, I, I said this little thing that really touched people. And I said, you know, a lot of people seem to think that God is inventing ways to catch you out. God is inventing ways to damn you to hell. God has got it in for you, so you better run. It, it seemed to really connect with that particular congregation and audience. Many talked about it for a long time afterwards. And I said, the truth of the matter is that it, nothing could be further from the, from the truth. That actually, God is inventing ways for you to come home. Inventing ways to be reunited, to be comforted, to be reassured, to be cleansed, to be clothed in his sight. And the way is Jesus. The ultimate way is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As we come to him, he washes us clean. He puts new robes upon us, a ring on our finger. He calls us son, he calls us daughter, not slave or servant. He embraces us. You know, in a few moments we're going to be doing the baptisms, and every one of the baptism, baptism candidates have a story of their own, and we'll catch a little bit of them, but, but every one of them has come to that point where they've realized they can stop running. They're no longer the running man or running woman because they can stop running and they can allow the Lord to forgive them and cleanse them. So anyway... Back to the plot, nearly finished. I realized that whatever else might have been going on there, Mark put that in because he wanted to put us in the garden. Not the disciples, not the betrayers, not the soldiers. He wanted us, the first Adam, the us, the, the naked us. He wanted us in that place. And we may be there because of good intentions. Maybe the young man was wanting to help Jesus in some way. But when shove comes to the first push, he wriggles free and runs. We come 
to life, we come to God wanting to do better, wanting to do well, but actually we end up struggling free and fleeing for our lives and hiding again. Quick hide. And the truth of the matter is, it's my conviction or my take on this here in St. Albans in 2012 that actually we are the running man. We are the running man. And what does Jesus do about that? What's, what's his response in the, in the midst of this Condition. Well, as I've already said, and as many of you know, Jesus is abandoned, and he's arrested, and he's carried off into the night. He's abused. He's tormented by the soldiers. They mock him. They beat him. They torture him. By the time dawn comes, when it's time to go to the cross, he's already half dead. But they load a cross on his back and he staggers bloody and bleeding through the streets, collapses. Eventually they have to enlist somebody out of the crowd to help him carry the cross because he's so spent. Drags himself up to the hill, the place of the skull, as they called it, where he is crucified. And the thing that is notable in all of this is he doesn't say a word. He doesn't beg for mercy. He doesn't scream out for his mother. That's a very common thing in those situations, apparently. He makes no sound. The Son of God, the King of Kings, the very Lamb of God, as we know him to be now, is silent like a lamb going to the slaughter. No bleating. And as he hangs from the cross, he finally speaks. Let's pick up the story. It's, it's in Luke chapter 23, verses 20, 32 to 34. Jesus is on the cross. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be ex- executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. You see, Jesus, it's interesting. He doesn't say, Father, forgive them for what they did to me. Or, Father, forgive them for what they're about to do. He says, Father, forgive them for what they are doing. Present tense, it brings it straight into the presence. And for us, if it's true that there is some part of us that just wants to run from the presence of a holy living God, what he wants to say to us as we desert him, in spite of our best of intentions, as we sin again, as we do things that we're ashamed about or we regret, let alone anyone else, What Jesus says to us from the cross is, Father, forgive them. They really don't know what they're doing. They really don't know. So that's the running man, part one. Next week, we'll be looking at the running man, part two. I hope it'll... 
I hope it'll enthrall you and excite you and, and, and just give you a lift, not just a fuzzy, wuzzy, sugar-sweet buzz, but a lift, a lift that will change your life. Part two of The Running Man next Sunday, 9.30 or 11.30. We do hope you'll join us. Bring your friends. It doesn't finish here. This isn't the end. But this encounter with Jesus, where as hard as we've tried to run from him, only finds us bumping into him again, where he looks at us without condemnation and says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. This is a powerful moment. This is an extraordinary moment. And it's a moment that we as Christians celebrate together the world over. I'm going to invite Richard to, to come up onto the stage now, but let me just pray before I do that. Father, I want to say thank you to you for this extraordinary rescue mission. Jesus, thank you for your willingness to go to the cross for us. And even though we all have deserted you, we've all turned out to our own ways. Thank you, Lord God, that you offer us forgiveness and you offer us a welcome home. We pray that today, Lord God, many of us will be reminded of that and many of us will find that way home. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.